0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Stephen Sokup. He is the publisher of the Political Forum and director of the Political Forum Institute. He has a new book out that caught my eye. It is called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Certainly a timely topic, uh, and I don't think it's a topic that's going away uh, uh, much anytime soon. Welcome, Stephen, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me, I appreciate
0: it. All right, you begin with the core phenomenon. What is the ESG movement?
1: Well, ESG stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance. Uh, And this is an investment trend that has been gaining steam over the last 10 years, but over the last probably two or three years, most especially. And it is an investment idea that is directed specifically at using the capital markets and leveraging the power of shareholder interest to affect political change that would otherwise not be possible through uh, regular democratic means.
0: Now, I would think, uh, Stephen, that right off the bat, wouldn't uh, Board of Directors and CEOs and other shareholders say, hey, that's not our job here. We're here to advance the, the, the business and, and uh, ensure prop- profits and make sure that we're running a, a good operation. Well, that, that's, one, that's one of the most difficult
1: aspects of the ESG movement is that it, it, it does in fact target corporate boards of directors and it targets huh. uh, corporate managers by leveraging the power of collective shareholder action. Uh, and by that, what I mean is that you know, every year, every publicly traded company uh, puts out a proxy statement and any shareholder who holds a certain amount of the stock is able to submit a shareholder proposal. Generally speaking, most of these proposals are are either negotiated away by the company or they're included on the proxy statement. And then the proxy statement goes out to shareholders who are allowed to vote uh, on the shareholder proposal. Now, if you happen to be in uh, one of these massive uh, asset management firms that has this investment directive specifically targeting this corporation for being environmentally unfriendly or not promoting enough diversity within its board or its management or its workforce, then what you do is you you all band together and use your collective power to punish them, to change the board of directors, to change the management, to change the bylaws of the company in order to get what you believe is most necessary to create a more effective company and a more just society.
0: And the business leaders felt that, you know, we can absorb this and still do very well. Was that the calculation that they made? well that's part of the calculation um, certainly uh, there are some who believe that
1: this is not something they would need to do but it's a hot investment trend and they might as well get on board uh, and make as much money as they possibly can uh, but there are others who are who are true believers who have actually convinced themselves and convinced Tens of thousands of others in the business and in the corporate world, more generally, uh, that if they do not address these issues, particularly the issue of sustainability or of corporate's readiness to corporate the corporate world's readiness to deal with climate change, then the whole world collapses anyway. So, so they think that any effort they make, any loss potential loss in return on investment, uh, is is absolutely necessary in order to save the world.
0: Save the world! I'm I I I'm on I'm I'm on it. Stephen, aren't yeah. you? Well, what's wrong with you? Uh, well, um, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs>
1: That's a long list. But in this particular instance, I I just know too much about the people involved and about the types of things that their actions produce. Uh, For example, I I know that the the most recent research coming from Harvard Business School, in fact, suggests that by focusing their efforts to defund either through debt measures or through equity – traditional energy firms, these asset managers are probably, in fact, hurting the environment more than they're helping it. The overwhelming majority of new patents filed and issued for new technologies uh, in alternative energy are filed on behalf of traditional energy companies. They're not filed by startups. They're not filed by alternative energy companies. They're filed by the traditional gas, oil, coal fossil fuel companies that are trying their best to diversify their business. And, and by defunding these companies, we're, we're actually cutting off our nose to, to spite our face.
0: Hmm. You mentioned early in the book a speech from June 2019 on the Senate floor by Senator Tom Cotton. What was that speech?
1: Well, it, that speech, first of all, is, is where the title of the book comes from. And as, as anybody who works at or is dedicated to reading First Things knows, that that's actually the title that First Things gave to their reprint of Senator Cotton's speech, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Yeah. And it's such a great title because it really captures the moment. Back in 2019, the Democratically elected representatives of the center-right state of Georgia and the democratically elected senator of the center-right state of Georgia passed, signed, enacted a fetal heartbeat bill, essentially to ban abortions after a baby's heartbeat can be heard in utero. That made a lot of of very powerful and very left-wing businessmen, very unhappy, particularly within the entertainment industry. Uh, So the entertainment industry, led mostly by Bob Iger, then the CEO of Disney, pushed back against the state of Georgia. They said, look, if you're going to fan inter- Stephen after the fetal heartbeat can be heard, uh, then we're not going to be doing business in, in the state of Georgia. And over the previous two decades, Georgia had invested a lot of money in attracting the entertainment industry. And roughly 100,000 Georgians, not people from Hollywood, not people in the entertainment industry, but people who live in Georgia, normal, average, everyday Georgians, 100,000 of them have their jobs tied to the entertainment industry. So, so Bob Iger says, I don't like your politics. I'm not going to do business in your state and these 100,000 people to hell with them. Their jobs don't matter to me. And this was this was something that got Senator Cotton extremely riled up, uh, and he took to the Senate floor and made this speech. That and, and this was the first real acknowledgement on the part of the conservative movement that there was something truly amiss with the corporate world and its attempts to use its power. To advocate for and to push its policies on an unwilling electorate.
0: Okay, uh, I, I was going to say that uh, I was in Atlanta through the '90s, and I remember the film industry really took off. They started doing a lot of films in in Atlanta, Georgia, and and around yeah. and around the city. It was actually very popular. It was a big thing in the city at that time. I didn't know a hundred thousand people had had become part of the industry, but. Wow. Well there there you go. There's the power that they wield. Now, is there anything that you can see? This steps out a little bit from, from the book, and I want to get to the book because you got a lot of historical background that, that goes into your study as well. But is there anything Republican politicians or conservative politicians, I should say, could they is there anything they can do? to stop yeah. Disney from, from these kind, this kind of blackmail? Yeah, there, there are things they can do.
1: And what they need to do in particular is to, like the rest of us, we all need to, to understand what's going on behind the scenes and who's playing this game and why they're doing so. Senator Cotton's speech was very important and it was very well-received, uh, but... I think it missed the larger point that this is not just a case of woke CEOs deciding that they want to to play games with politics this This is far more serious and far more involved than that this is This is about the finance industry. this is about pushing the capital markets to the left. This is about, as I said earlier, abusing uh, the shareholder proposal process to advance political goals rather than financial goals. This is an enormous problem. And what what we need our representatives in Washington to do, first of all, is to try and wrap their heads around just how enormous this problem is. Once they've done that, then they can begin to understand how important the SEC and the SEC's objectivity is, to understand how directly the Biden administration wishes to undermine the SEC and its objectivity, uh, and they can start to push back a little bit in that way.
0: Yeah, that would be nice to see. Uh, Yeah. One thing that you point out early on is that... This isn't really the way in which the traditional left would operate. You you actually regard woke as something of a symptom of the decline of the traditional left in America. How, how is that? Well, I would make
1: the case, and, and certainly I'm not the first by a long way, but I would make the case that the Economic left, the old Marxist left uh, that everyone grew up believing in and understanding from the Cold War, the communists, the Marxists, control the means of production, etc. You know all of that. That mm-hmm. that's really not as important today as it once was. The economic left essentially died uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, and was replaced very stealthily uh, with what we know today as the cultural left. The cultural the culture wars are very much a product of the death of the economic left and the rise of the cultural left.
0: The old left would not talk about diversifying boardrooms. No. That wouldn't even be on their on their radar. No, not at all. Is there any is there any economic left in in I mean was Bernie Sanders Economic left, and then what seemed to me is he was economic, an old, sort of an old-fashioned economic leftist, who simply got absorbed by the cultural left, and he he got on board with all of that stuff. Is that right? Well,
1: I, yeah, I think there certainly there are a few holdouts, uh, you know, like the apocryphal Japanese soldiers who, you know, 30 years later were stranded on <laughs> islands, you know, in the Pacific and didn't know the war was over. Bernie Sanders didn't know for a long time that the war was over uh, and that his side lost. But I think he's come to that realization. Uh, but even with Sanders, if you look, for example, at his 2016 Platform. What he advocates there, you know, uh, student loan forgiveness and Medicare for all and things like that. That none of that is truly Marxist. Uh, mostly, what that is is egoist, uh, which is to say, it's it's about creating creature comforts to satisfy the ego. It's it's about creating yeah. middle class entitlements to essentially placate voters into granting you more and more power.
0: It seems to me that an an old fashioned Marxist would look at something like student loans. And the first thing that he would ask is, who takes student loans? I don't think it's so much of the proletariat doing that. The proletariat isn't going to those expensive private colleges that run up $200,000 bills on students. And so that when you forgive those loans, that's that's going hit, to hit the working class ki- kind of hard. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. If you look at the numbers, and I've written about this before, but I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, But if you look at the numbers, the overwhelming percentage of the benefit from student loan forgiveness uh, and from Medicaid for all and all of the programs that the democratic socialists advocate, the overwhelming benefit from that goes to the middle class. They amount to a massive wealth transfer from the lower class to the middle class. And there's nothing Marxist about that.
0: Indeed. Now, you begin the story of, we'll just, maybe we'll put it under the umbrella, the politicization of business. You, you start the story uh, 140 years ago, uh, nearly, uh, in 1876. What happened there?
1: When I use the term woke capital, what I mean is an anti-democratic down movement to change business to change capitalism and to change the relationship between the citizen and the state and the key word there is anti-democratic throughout the last 140 150 years uh, of American politics there has been this continual effort on the part of for lack of a better term the elites to deprive the masses of any sort of political input because of their belief that the masses are incapable of governing themselves or incapable of running an effective modern state. And the genesis of that idea comes from where I start the book is, is in 1876 uh, in Baltimore at the newly formed Johns Hopkins University, where Richard Ely, uh, who is one of the godfathers of American progressivism, is a professor and one of his PhD students is Woodrow Wilson, another one of the godfathers of American progressivism and the godfather of American public administration. The two of them had the vision that they would like to see a professional administrative class created specifically for the purpose of running the country as effectively and as scientifically as possible, and for this class to be as insulated as possible from politics so that the people who don't know any better, uh, the people who are not smart enough to run the world are not able to distract these administrators from doing what they know to be good and right and scientifically proven.
0: Thank goodness. Where would we be without them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I but th- this process, again, this process uh, continues throughout history or uh, throughout American history. Wilson became president in 1912 and the American bureaucracy began to grow and began to take over this role for some time until it became clear that the bureaucrats are no better able to run a professional society than the voters are. Yeah. So, over time, the respect for these professional administrative class tended to wane. And when that did, the Democrats then turned to the, to the courts insisting that what the people wouldn't give them, the courts would. The courts, the judges, the Supreme Court justices would provide the wisdom that the people couldn't provide. And then over the past couple of decades, that idea has waned as well as it's become clear that they can't control the court system quite as effectively as they would like to. And so this, this push into business, this push to have business go around the will of the people and to enact this ideal scientifically directed state is the latest effort in you know what is a century and a half long trip through anti-democracy
0: what was tap t a p p
1: Okay. Well, TAP was one of the ideas that was created by the Stanford Research Institute in the 1960s. And the Stanford Research Institute was created in large part to try to rationalize and systematize the idea of business planning. And, and so in the 1960s, An entire group of the most effective and best-known business planners were collected at Stanford and created this theory and practice of planning program, which was the idea that they could come up with best practices. And this, a lot of the ideas that we are seeing used in woke capital today uh, were developed in this program. In the theory of practice and planning, or theory and practice of planning program, uh, as practical measures, um, they were not intended to be ethical or moral measures. They were simply the way that businesses could see how best practice is done and imitate that in order to improve their own function. In the 1970s, then especially in the 1980s, various academics, philosophers, and others took uh, a lot of the ideas that they created at at the Stanford Research Institute and and changed the way that they worked. They changed them from practical measures to more normative ideas and and tried to give them a moral scene in order to change what they believed to be uh, the shortcomings uh, of American
0: capitalism. And where we are now, you you picked some strong examples. How does the career of Eric Holder exemplify the state of things with woke capital?
1: Eric Holder, if you want to understand just how beholden Eric Holder is to big capital and just how beholden big capital is to Eric Holder, uh, you should read uh, Matt Taibbi's, I think, 2012 Rolling Stone essay. On Holder and uh, Wall Street, uh, because it, it's truly devastating. Holder, as the Attorney General, essentially let billion-dollar criminals walk specifically because he had no interest. The excuse given was, I don't want to damage the economy uh, by punishing these companies. And it turns out that a lot of these companies were clients of, of Eric Holder's uh, law firm, or his former law firm at the time, to which he returned uh, after he was uh, after retired as attorney general. So Eric Holder is sort of the symbolic connection between big business and big government this corporatocracy that we see playing out in American government today. He is very much a symbolic representation of that.
0: Yeah, I see that you despise Apple and its mendacious leader, Tim Cook, as much as I do. Uh, What what, what are your reasons? Well, uh,
1: Tim Cook is uh, very aggressively and very... uh, condescendingly focused on social justice and in this country. uh, And he's very aggressively and very sort of condescendingly uh, focused on environmentalism in this country and, and has no qualms whatsoever about sharing his beliefs about that, sharing his beliefs about the unworthiness of people who don't support the same ideas he does, and is is not shy at all about spending shareholder funds to try and achieve these goals. All the while, the the Apple corporation is virtually tied at the hip to the Chinese Communist Party. The public or the People's Republic of China would not be in the position it is today without Apple. And mm. Apple would not be in the position it is in today uh, without the People's Republic of China. Uh, over the last two decades, Cook has invested heavily uh, in China, which is its second largest market and obviously its largest manufacturing uh, zone and he has spent a great deal of time doing the, the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. For example, uh, last year, when there were protests and riots and attempts uh, to salvage some freedom in Hong Kong, the, the government in Beijing decided that it didn't like some of the apps that were available uh, to these protesters in the Apple uh, App Store. And so it asked Tim Cook for those to be removed, and lo and behold, they were removed. Uh, so. This social justice warrior, Tim Cook, spends a lot of time lecturing us, even as he undermines the fight for freedom in Hong Kong.
0: You know, to see these companies go political, it's, it's very dismaying. And and a the, the, the lot of the stories you tell, they're, they're actually they're, they're infuriating, Stephen. I mean, how did what was CalPERS? And how did that get politicized?
1: CalPERS is the California public pension system, the the largest pension system in the country. The overwhelming majority of public employees in California have their investments in CalPERS. But like all public institutions in California, CalPERS has has moved pretty uh, aggressively to the left. Way back in 2000, when Goldman Sachs was... The investment banker bringing PetroChina to IPO in the American markets. A handful of activists, and I would count myself and and my uh, then boss and now business partner, Mark Melcher, uh, among those activists, pushed back against this saying, hey, look, this is the listed arm of the Chinese National Petroleum Company, which is doing business in Sanctioned terrorist states, which is supporting the regime in Sudan, among others. And Sudan is not only waging a civil war, but is actively selling black slaves uh, in Khartoum. A modern-day slave trade in Khartoum uh, was being supported by the Chinese National Petroleum Company, and so this handful of activists made made us think about it. And Calpers was one of the one of the, the large asset management firms that pulled out, said, "You know what? If that's what's going on." We don't want to be involved, and they pulled out. And Goldman Sachs ended up losing considerable amount of money. It was, you know, they expected the IPO to net them, you know, twenty billion, and it ended up in the neighborhood of five or six, I believe. Uh, so, as short as twenty years ago, Calpers was a fairly ethically managed firm, but it no longer is. Now it focuses on ESG investments at home, even as it invests like all of these large asset management firms, even as it invests in Chinese companies that are tied to the Chinese state, that are oftentimes tied to the Chinese defense industry. So it issues this woke Order at home, and yet invest in companies that are actively uh, suppressing the Uyghurs and companies that are actively seeking to destroy the United States in China.
0: Final question, uh, Stephen: Is there any incentive on the part of business leaders to to resist this politicization? The activists: Is is there any force out there that is going to make them stop?
1: Yes. I don't think there is any you know person or entity or organization that is going to get them to stop. Uh, I do however think that Eventually, the markets will self-correct. A lot of this ESG stuff, and particularly the environmental stuff, it is very much resulting in misallocation of capital. And misallocation of capital is misallocation of capital. It doesn't matter whether it's done for corrupt means or if it's done because you think you're saving the world or what. If you misallocate capital, eventually it's going to cause problems. And... The problems that it will cause in this case are that these firms who have invested thusly are going to eventually start to lose money. Uh, The investments that they've made uh, will prove to provide less return on investment than other investments. Um, And and so they will eventually start to lose money and this whole process will self-correct. The catch there is that when BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street talks about the trillions and trillions of dollars that they can leverage uh, in this fight, they're not talking about their money. They're talking about our money. They're talking about your money. They're talking about my money. The money that, you know, mom and pop have invested in their IRA or their 401k. Hmm. Uh, And so I believe, yes, that this will eventually self-correct, that the markets will take care of this. Uh, But at the same time, I believe that when it does, there will be an awful lot of financial pain.
0: The book is The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Stephen Sokup, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, The Catholic Tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.